I'm already having problems up here. <coughs> Thanks, guys. So we're um, continuing in our um, series on the book of Kings. We're going to try to cover quite a bit of ground in the text today. So before we get started, if you would pray with me and we'll ask for God's guidance on this. Father, we thank you again for this morning and for the opportunity to come together and worship. Father, be with us as we study your word. Help us to use these things for our benefit, to walk away from here today a different kind of person. These things we pray in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Um, have you ever lost something of value? Um, maybe you had a car stolen, or your house broken into, or a fire, maybe a tornado, some kind of accident, something in your life that took basically everything, lost a job, and as a result lost other things. Um, I'll have to admit, I, I really haven't had that happen to me in a big way. Um, never really had, you know, something that just destroyed my life, took, that took everything from me. But if you have, how did, how did that make you feel? Did you feel abandoned, angry, lost, searching for answers? Um, you know, I had, I can't really identify with this much. I mean, my, my first wife took a bunch of my stuff, but that was mostly relief. Um, but it happens. People have things. Um, in modern America, we don't have this as much um, as the rest of the world does. It's hard for us to really identify with that in a lot of ways. And even with people earlier in our history. I mean, we have insurance. Most of, for most of us, if we lost everything, it wouldn't take that long to turn things around and come back. Um, but for the most of the rest of the world, this is a very real uh, concern. Um, uh, a hurricane, a war, uh, economic depression, all these things can just completely wipe out um, people's lives. And they find themselves having to flee their homes and leave everything behind. Um, in fact, uh, for most of our ancestors, most Americans, that's exactly their story, right? Your grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents were fleeing something. They were fleeing war or oppression. They were fleeing to come to America to start a new life. Because this is a place where we don't really experience this kind of thing much. So I need you to imagine for a minute that the United States, America, North America, whatever, has been invaded. And, and the United States have been conquered. And we've all, or let's say not war, let's say a meteor has struck in Kansas. And it's made North America uninhabitable. And we've all had to be flee or been taken or whatever, left everything behind, and moved to South America and start over. Right? 
that kind of destruction, that kind of, of real disaster where we lose everything and leave, and how would that make you feel? For ancient Israel, this is exactly what happened to them. And the book of Kings is being written directly into this situation. It's answering that question because about 400 years after the event we'll study today, the Babylonians swept into Jerusalem and gutted the place, raised it, destroyed that temple that Scotty talked about a couple of weeks ago that they had built, burned it to the ground, left nothing behind, and tens of thousands of Jews, hundreds of thousands maybe, were taken out of Jerusalem back to Babylon and told, this is where you live now, whether you like it or not. And so they're sitting on the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers looking around going, what happened? How, how did we get here? Has God abandoned us? I thought we were the chosen people. I thought we had been promised that we would always have that land. And so the writers of Kings are speaking into that, trying to answer that question for them. Because Way back in Genesis, right, when God chose Abraham out of the people, out of the nations, and said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I'm going to bless all the other nations through you. So the Jews, the, the Israelites sitting in Babylon are saying, well, what happened? What happened to the promises? We're going to start in 1 Kings 8.22, where Scotty left off, we're going to try to make it all the way through the end of the chapter, uh, all the way through the end of chapter 9. So we're going to be, we're going to, won't read every word, we'll just skip over key phrases, we'll look for repeated words, and we'll look for a way to see how the authors are speaking into this situation. So what you've got to do is try to put your, your mind, right, put yourself in their shoes, that you're an ancient Israelite, and the Babylonian, the evil Babylonian empire has destroyed your nation, destroyed your capital, burned down your temple. That would be like somebody invading and destroying Washington, D.C. and toppling the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial and the Capitol building and taking you back where they came from. And you're sitting in Babylon wondering what happened. And so the story starts. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire community of Israel, and he lifted his hands toward heaven, and he prayed. So this is Solomon speaking. We've been talking about King Solomon. He is their greatest king, and this is Israel's golden age. Um, history shows that at this time, Israel was likely the largest and most powerful nation on earth. This was 1,000 B.C., there is no Babylonian empire, there is no Roman empire, there is no Greek empire, there's none of that. There's a fairly large Chinese empire, not all that big. Israel is it. It's the center of the world right now. They've got it made. It would appear to the people living in Solomon's time that the promises of Abraham, that his family would be blessed and, and lead the nations, are coming true. It's happening right now. 
So Solomon continues, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven above or on the earth below. You keep your covenant and show unfailing love to all who walk before you in wholehearted devotion. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. You made that promise with your own mouth, and with your own hands you have fulfilled it today. He's basically saying, God, there's no other God like you. You're a God who keeps your promises. You've, said, you've done what you said you were going to do. And then in verses 25 through 26, which we won't read, now as long as people, in the, he's basically saying, now as long as people in the future keep your promises, things will go great. You'll keep blessing this nation as long as we keep our promises. And of course, you're sitting in Babylon going, but we didn't. We didn't keep our promises. Verse 27. But will God really live on earth? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. In spite of all the temple's great glory, and it was a marvelous structure. I once built a scale model of the temple for a Sunday school class out of cardboard. And it was, a, you get down and get like your view on it, and it was incredible. The thing was huge. It's like 90 feet tall or something. It's just gigantic, massive building sitting on top of a high cliff overlooking Jerusalem. It was impressive. It was plated with gold. It shone in the sun. God, you can't live in a building. This is very significant because in the ancient world, see, people really did believe that the gods would move into their temple. Solomon is saying, you, you can't be contained in a temple. In fact, it shocked the Gentiles around them that they didn't have an idol in their temple. How can you have a temple with no idol? Where's the God going to live? How, are you, how do you do that? They actually thought that the um, Israelites were atheists because they had no idol. How do you like that? And really, again, if you're that Babylonian, right, it has been destroyed, so it's a good thing your God can't can't live in the temple. Doesn't live in the temple, isn't it? Verses twenty nine thirty. May you watch over this temple night and day, this place where I have said, my name will be there. May you always hear the prayers I make toward this place. May you hear the humble and earnest requests from me and your people Israel. When we pray towards this place, yes, hear us from heaven where you live, and when you hear, forgive. Something to note, two things to notice here. One is, my name will be there. Um, name and name, names and naming in the Bible are always very important. And it's interesting that a lot of times the name of God, and yes, God does have a name, the name of God is almost treated like a character in the story. So it puts some significance on the fact that his name will be assigned to the temple. Now, Solomon said he can't, that God can't be contained in a temple, so even if the temple's destroyed, that doesn't change God's nature. That doesn't mean God has been defeated. It just means he's taken his name off the temple and will no longer count it as special. You want to especially, if you want a really good or interesting study sometime, Go to your concordance and look, all, look up all the times that names or naming are mentioned. 
and you'll find some very interesting things going on there because when you give something a name, it means you own it. And a name gives something significant. And so when people are going through a transition in their lives, a lot of times they'll get a new name. What's really interesting is way back in Genesis, again, we keep going back there, right? Way back in Genesis, at the Tower of Babel story, the people in Babylon, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? That you've been taken off to Babylon and then things started going bad in Babylon. That's a whole other theme that you see over and over. Is they were building a tower to make a name for themselves. And now Solomon has built a structure to put God's name. It's a nice little inversion there. He also says, hear us from heaven where you live. This is a phrase that would be repeated multiple times through the rest of chapter 8. This, this little theme. Hear us from heaven where you live. Verses 31 and 32. First off, he, said, he asked God to judge his people rightly and not show partiality. In the second half of 32, he says, punish the guilty as they deserve and acquit the innocent of their, for their inno- of their, because of their innocence. That's fair enough. We want you to hold us accountable. And then in verses 33 through 40, he lays out several scenarios, and he uses a formula as he says this over and over. Let's look at 33. If your people Israel are defeated by their enemies because they have sinned against you. And this is exactly their situation. The exiles in Babylon do recognize or need to recognize that they have been defeated by their enemies because they have sinned against God. Now, I want you to notice something here. It says, if, because. In each of these statements that Solomon's about to make, it says, if, because. Um, It's not always the case that a calamity is caused by your sins. It's not always the case that it's caused by, by something you've done. The same with the people of Israel. They might be defeated by enemies when it's not because of their sins. They've got to discern that. They've got to step back and take a look at that and see whether or not that's the case. And so that's the formula. He goes on and talks about droughts and famines and plagues and all these different things these different calamities that could fall on the people of Israel. And every time he says, if such and so happens because of our sins, hear from heaven when we pray to you. It's also important to note that he doesn't pray that God would remove them from the situation. He says, if, if we, this happens to us, hear us from heaven, have mercy on us, Forgive us of our sins, and that's it. Not put it, restore us to, to, to our homes or restore us. No, just forgive us. And then we'll live with the consequences if necessary. Then verse 39, he says, Give your people what their actions deserve, for you alone know each human heart. I got a question for you. Could you honestly pray that? Do you want 
to get what your actions deserve. I don't. I want God to give me what my actions don't deserve. <laughs> right? I want to avoid getting what my actions deserve. Verses 41 through 43. In the future, foreigners who do not belong to your people, Israel, pay attention to this, will hear of you. They will come from distant lands because of your name. Then hear from heaven where you live and grant what they ask of you. Now this again sounds an awful lot like this thing back at, this promise back to Abraham, right? That the na- that Ab- Abraham would become a great nation and that the, the nations around, that nation would be blessed because of him. And this gives them a little perspective, right? You're an ancient Israelite living in Babylon. This gives you some perspective on your situation. Your Babylonian neighbors may hear about the God, Yahweh. So can we do this? Can we pray for our unbelieving neighbors? We should be. Can we encourage them to pray to our God? We should. Do we encourage God to hear their prayers? Now that's an interesting one. That's what Solomon just said. Do you, does God hear the prayers of those who don't believe? Yes, he does. Because God wants to bless everyone. Otherwise, nobody would ever become a Christian. And we should encourage God when, when we know of people who are in trouble, in distress. God, I know they're calling out to you. Maybe they don't understand you. Maybe they don't really know what they're calling out for. Maybe they don't get any of that. But could you answer them and help them? This is also a bit of a setup for chapter 10 because here pretty soon the Queen of Sheba is going to come and visit King Solomon. And so this is like a little tidbit here, a little hint. Something's coming here in the book of Kings. Skipping on down to verses 46 through 51, he says, There may come a time when we sin so badly that you allow us to be taken away, which you know we know 400 years later did happen. We, not Solomon, but people in the future to him, um, they, we, we can't control what our ancestors do. But we can control what we do. And so in verse 47 he says, But in that land of exile they may turn to you in repentance and pray. We have sinned, done evil, and acted wickedly. So this is speaking directly into the situation with these exiles, these people in Babylon. Skipping down to verse 50. Make their captors merciful to them, for they are your people, your special possession, whom you brought out of the iron-smelting furnace of Egypt. Their special possession. So, this is a reminder to the, the people in exile. Just because you're in exile, just because your ancestors did wrong, didn't mean you stopped being God's special possession. Just because your situation's not that great doesn't mean that God stopped loving you. Um, this is a, also a common theme and you see in Hebrew prayer, and it's something I've learned to incorporate into my own prayers is that 
it's perfectly fine to re- remind pro- God of his promises. It's perfectly fine to, to remind God of what he's done in the, in the past. Over and over again, you see the prophets praying in this way. Um, asking God to remember his work with others as he's dealing with us. To re- for us as Christians to remember his son's sacrifice. God, remember what you, what you gave for me. We, I have a need. I need you to move like that again. Um, the iron smelting furnace of Egypt, that's a stark image, isn't it? Um, the, he basically, um, Solomon was saying, you, we didn't come from nowhere. And God was refining us back then in a furnace in Egypt. And he's going to keep on refining us. And if he rescued us once, he can rescue us again. We need to remember that. Um, then verses 52 and 55, which we're not going to read, he sums up everything, and he asks God to be with Israel now, just as he was in the past. And he notes that one of the promises, that none of the promises has failed. Now this is huge for the, if you're living in exile in Babylon. God didn't fail. We failed God. And then finally he gives a blessing on the temple, And we have a final dedication of the temple at the end of the chapter. And then there's a great festival. And in verse 66, they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad because the Lord had been good to his servant David and to his people Israel. So that's it. That's that's the end of that chapter. Are you still with me? So now the scene's about to shift. And we're going to get God's response to Solomon. But I want to bring a couple of things up. As we read the Bible, the biblical authors are inviting us to, to into the conversation. And going all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve, God had promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so as you're reading through the, through the Old Testament, you should be asking yourself a question. As each character steps on the stage, you should be asking, is this the one? Is this going to be the seed that crushes the serpent? Now, we have the, the um, benefit of hindsight. We know that each one isn't. But the biblical authors are really trying to get you to ask that question, to look at that character and say, could this be the guy? Could this be the promised son of the woman? And so with Solomon, that's the question. Is this going to be the guy? I mean, we've got a temple for God. We've got a great king who's acting like a priest. The temple's, you may not be aware of this, the temple is decorated like the Garden of Eden. It's supposed to look like Eden. It's supposed to remind people of the garden when they walk into it. There's an enormous amount of wealth and prosperity. Solomon is powerful. He's famous. He's wise, and God talks directly to him. I mean, it's not, it doesn't get any better. This is the guy. This is going to be the one. In chapter 9, here God has appeared to Solomon again. Earlier in the book of Kings, he appeared to Solomon, when Solomon asked him for wisdom. 
And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your petition. I have set this temple apart to be holy, the place you have built where my name will be honored forever. I will always watch over it, for it is dear to my heart. Then verses 4 and 5, And if you obey me, things will go great. And after that, if you don't, things will go badly for you and your descendants. And people will ask, what happened? In verse 8, he says, people will ask, why did the Lord do such terrible things to this land and to this temple? Why did these things happen to us? And in verse 9, we get the key to the whole section. Because his people abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of Egypt. And they worshipped other gods instead and bowed down to them. Now, a couple of things to note here. First off, is that the deal being made is between God and whom? The deal being made is between God and ancient Israel. Does ancient Israel still exist? No. No. So the, the things we're talking about here, they don't really apply directly to us. We've got to find a way, right? We've got to find a way to get some principles to glean. There's principles to glean from it. But we have a new agreement under Jesus. <clears throat> we are told in multiple places, things that, the things that are written before us are to serve as examples for us, like, like this one. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. I can, I can, I can dig that. I've, I've got an example of an ancient Israelite who didn't do what they were supposed to do, and bad things happened to them. Got it. But on the other, we are also told things like this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from a law of sin and death. That's my agreement. So we're supposed to go to these stories to learn something, right? And not make the same or similar mistakes, while at the same time knowing we have security in Christ. We are taught in the New Testament, in the, under the new agreement, that there's a tension to live in. Right? We, live in, we live with this tension. We live with this tension that says, listen, people in the past did some things that were, and they mucked it up. Don't be like them. But at the same time, you have security. You're solid. So now we have the setup. We won't read all the verses in chapter 9. But we've got Solomon's prayer. We've got God's response, now we're going to see another angle on this whole thing. Since you are in exile in Babylon, you know things are going to fall apart. But the surprising thing is how quickly they do. Now for each of these sections, the author wants you to respond with, hold the phone. So I'm, when I hold my finger, I want you to say, hold the phone. Ready? You gotta say it like Shrek, right? Hold the phone, <laughs> all right? 
So, for verses 10 through 13. In verses 10 through 13, the author sa- explains that Solomon gives Hiram, the king of Tyre, a bunch of cities, and they're worthless. And Tyre complain, or Hiram complains about it. What the heck? Solomon, you cheated the guy who helped you build the temple? Really? Instead of being a blessing to the nation, you became a curse. Then in verses 15 through 19, he gives an account of the forced labor Solomon used for the temple and a description of a deal made with Pharaoh when he married his daughter and a list of all the places he built for his chariots and horses. Hold the phone? What? Forced labor? Is that okay? Married the daughter of Pharaoh, I thought we weren't supposed to marry non-Jews. Chariots and horses? Didn't God say not to do that? Yeah, he did. And then in verse 20 through 23, we get an account of how he enslaved the remnants of the Canaanites. <laughs> Hold the phone. What? Enslaved the Canaanites? You're not supposed to enslave the Canaanites. God never said to do that. And... Weren't we slaves back in Egypt? Didn't God have some rules about slavery and everything? And he kept saying, because you were slaves in Egypt? There were actually rules in Israel that if you had a slave, that after seven years, you turned him loose. You were supposed to free your slaves. Why? Because you were enslaved back in Egypt, and I don't want you acting like that. And then here Solomon turns around and acts like that. And then verse 24 describes the special palace he built just for the queen, the princess of Egypt. Oh, isn't that a bit much, Solomon? Just exactly whose kingdom are you building here, God's or yours? And then in verse, it goes on. Verses 26 and 27 describes a fleet of ships and an accumulation of wealth that came from those. Hold the phone. Wait. I thought the king wasn't supposed to accumulate great wealth for himself. God already said he would give you wealth, Solomon. You didn't have to go out and get more. So that's the end of chapter 9. So we're going to try to land the plane now, but there you have it. right? Solomon is portrayed in the biblical story as a man of great power, wealth, and prestige. He has the ear of God. He's a man of many accomplishments. But something's rotten under the surface. Um, in Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural, he looked back at the last four years of war and destruction, and he couldn't help but see God's judgment on our nation because we hadn't dealt with slavery and the oppression of black people properly back when the country was founded. Um, The people in exile in Babylon have a similar opportunity to look back at 400 years of their history and see Solomon came out of the gate wrong. He had an opportunity. He had an opportunity to be that guy, and he blew it. He lost their promise. Now, as we said, 
this agreement between the nation of Israel and the God was not is not for us, it's for them, but we can certainly learn some things from it if we ask some well-placed questions. And we don't often find ourselves in the kind of exile that ancient Israel did, right? We don't have that happen to us. But there are times when we still feel like we're in exile. And in the New Testament, the writers there assume that all Christians on some level are in exile, that we're waiting for another home, that this is not our permanent residence. We know this place is broken. We know that our reality is full of sin and death. So let's ask some questions. Would you be willing to pray, as Solomon did, that you get from God whatever you deserve? That's a hard question. Did somebody say no? <laughs> no. Um, if your life is disrupted in some way, can you ask yourself what's going on? Have I done something? Is God trying to get my attention? Am I reaping what, I'm, what I sowed? C.S. Lewis once said that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes we have done something, and God wants us to wake up. When bad things happen to people, you always hear people say, oh, you, you shouldn't blame yourself. You can't blame yourself for this. Why? Look at it in the eye. Admit that you made a mistake. Pray to God. And just like he said, Solomon said, God will hear you from heaven and forgive you of that thing. Be a man about it. Or be like my wife and fight like a, a woman, a girl. But. Third, is this fallout from someone who went before me? This is what happened to Israel, right? A lot of those Israelites in, in Babylon, they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't worship the idols. They didn't do the things that their ancestors did. But they're there anyway. Sometimes there's a family dynamic involved. Sometimes it's just fallout from that. There's nothing you can do about it. It has nothing to do with you. You didn't create this situation. You can't help, nor are you responsible, for things that your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, aunts, uncles, whatever, did before you came along, but you still have to live with it. You have to live with the fallout from it. In our own nation, we are not responsible for decisions people made in the past. But we still have to live with some of those. Whether we like it or not. But the call for us is to be humble and pray. Pray for our situation. Pray for forgiveness if we have done something. And in the prophets, they even prayed that God would forgive them for things that other people had done. Forgive my family for the way my grandfather was and the fallout that came from that. Sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes it's a fallout by a poor decision by leadership. 
in case of ancient Israel again. Imagine that you're a Christian living in Nazi Germany during World War II. You didn't do anything. You didn't invade France. But you're getting bombs dropped in your head anyway. Imperial Japan. Today, North Korea. Libya, Syria, Iran. All these places where horrible things are happening to people through no fault of the people who live there. They just want to get by. Our appropriate response, again, is to pray for our leadership. Hit our knees. Decisions made by governors and presidents will have an impact. We've got to pray for them and pray for our nation. Pray for our families. Pray for our work. Sometimes the things that happen to you are a result of a decision by a boss or an owner. Nothing to do with you. Sometimes it's just the natural order of things. Sometimes a famine is just a famine. It's not a judgment from God. Sometimes a hurricane is just a hurricane. A fire is just a fire. A war is just a war. It has nothing to do with God at all. People are evil. This world is broken. Things fall apart. It has nothing to do. You haven't done anything. So if you've done the soul searching, you've looked around, you see no other. It's just there. There may not be any reason at all why you have to deal with your particular stress or trial. When I was 21, I had testicular cancer that almost killed me. I didn't deserve that. No, I hadn't done anything. It just happened. Your appropriate response, Jesus addresses this in Luke 13, when some people, that some people came to him asking about a bunch of Galileans that were, uh, that were killed by the Romans. And he, he says, do you think they deserve to die any more than anybody else did? No. Things happen. Repent. Follow God. Or something much worse may happen. And the question is not, why is God punishing me? The question is, what makes you so special that you think God should protect you from this? That was what God said to Job during his troubles. When did you get so special? Never once has God suggested that everything will go exactly the way you think it should. Over and over again in the Bible, the real question is, now that you're in it, how are you going to act? 1 Peter 1.7, Peter says, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire and test and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. That's interesting. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. It's an opportunity when you go through these things. So imagine how much different your life or your family or your workplace would be if we could do this. When things go badly, when we find ourselves in ag exile, 
Did I do something to bring this on? Is God trying to get my attention? How am I going to be different when I, when I get through this? Is this fallout from someone else? Is this a legacy of my family? And what can I do to change it? What am I doing to make a difference? Is this a fallout from someone in authority? How am I responding to that? Or is this just the natural order of things? Is a plague just a plague? It's a broken and messed up world. What am I doing to fix it? Are people being drawn to Jesus by my response or repelled? Am I helping the situation or am I hurting? Am I seeing this as an opportunity to grow or am I losing it? I can either lose it or I can learn from it. And that's the choice placed before the people in exile in Babylon. That's the choice placed before us every single day. So when you're in your midst of your struggles, remember always that if you'll just face the situation, turn to God in prayer, he will hear from heaven and respond. Can you pray with me? Father, we thank you today for the word that you brought us. We thank you for your great love and mercy. Father, it's so so difficult to pray that we receive the thing we deserve. We don't want that. We want your grace and mercy more than anything. When we find ourselves in a bad situation where things have been taken away from us, when we've lost everything, teach us to turn to you in prayer, to evaluate our lives, evaluate ourselves, but mostly to act with grace and love in the midst of it. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now go be the church.